You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. What we want to kind of talk about is uh, progress in the spiritual life. Um, And to start, we have to kind of define what we mean by progress, right? Like that's a kind of a key element. Like what is, what are the milestones? And you already mentioned the three. Um, but there, there's more, it's a little deeper than that, right? The progress is to become more and more and more and more like Christ. That's, that's our standard, all right? That's where we're going, right? The more we're conformed to Christ, the further we go, all right? And so there's obviously um, obstacles along the way. So what Father Ian's going to do is give you guys sort of... Um, we call it a report card. I hate to call it that, but um, so he's the mean guy, and I'll, I'll be the good cop who who gives you all the lovey-dovey stuff. Um, and what we're going to talk about is just what I think are the two most common obstacles that, no matter where you are, you always hit. Okay, and, and the first obstacle is knowing, seeing God as Father, and then listening or learning how the Holy Spirit speaks to me individually. Okay, so those are the two kind of themes of our talks and how we can attune ourselves to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. The, the kind of the classic example, right, is Elijah when he goes, you guys know the story of like Elijah when he goes out into the, out into the, um, out into the mountains and, you know, he knows God's going to pass by and there's all this like crazy stuff going on and somehow God's not in those things, right? And he wasn't in those things because Elijah knew exactly how God spoke to him. Right, that soft whisper, that was for Elijah and Elijah alone. Right? It was the voice um, that God and the way that God spoke to him. And when you learn, when, when we learn, like how God speaks to me directly, how he, how he says things to me, we can begin to drain out the other voices, including our own. Okay? And so that's, again, sort of like one of the, the goals of the spiritual life is to know exactly how God is speaking to me and how he speaks to me. Okay. All right. So, so progress is becoming like Christ. All right. And so what we're going to start with then um, is a, a meditation on the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And what I really want to focus on, what, what has to happen all right, in order for you to see God as Father is your identity has to be rooted in being a beloved daughter of God. That has to be your identity. And so that's that's going to be a theme almost throughout the whole day is how do I, how do I identify myself? How do I, how do I say who I am? And not in the sense of like I introduce myself and go, Hey, I'm Rob. I'm a beloved son of God. Um, but in the sense of like deep down, when I look at the world, when I see the world and I see myself in the world, I say, I know who I am. Okay. And, and everything is rooted out of that. All right. So, so for the guided meditation, we're going we're gonna to look at the baptism in the Jordan. First thing we're going to do, and some of you have already been through this, but um, I'm kind of a one-trick pony. What I want to do is kind of take you through a meditation method. And this method isn't, um, again, like meth- think methods, right? Methods of prayer are don't get wedded to the method. Um, but this one is particularly powerful uh, because of the way it uses sacred scripture and uses deep theological truths, right? And so you think about like saints, like St. Thomas Aquinas, right? 
St. Thomas Aquinas was not a saint because he wrote the Summa. St. Thomas was a saint because he was a Summa walking around. Like, in, the, in his heart, he said, I am St. Thomas the Summa. Everything that he put in there, he believed, and he believed it so much that he lived his life according to it. And that's really how, like, theology is supposed to be done. And so, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to sort of do a little bit of deep theology, not in the sense of, like, really complicated stuff, but how to take just a couple of theological truths, connect them, and then all of a sudden the spiritual life opens up. All right. All right, so we think about the idea of we call everything that Christ did in his life a mystery, like individually mysteries, right? Like the, the rosary, we have mysteries of the rosary. Why are they mysteries? What, what makes them mysterious? Is it because we don't know a lot about them? Or is it because of the person who we're encountering in that? It's the person, right? And it's the person who somehow, beyond our wildest imagination, stepped into time and yet is eternal. So he steps into time and all times are present to him. Right? And the kind of classic example is in the garden when he falls on his knees and he starts sweating blood. Right? Why is he sweating blood? Because in order to atone for all the sins of the world, he has to see them. He literally has to take them on. Right? And not just sins going on around him, not just sins that already happened, but sins from, from beginning to end. Because if he doesn't atone for them, they're not redeemed. Right? So every one of my sins, every one of my sins, he sees and he talks to the Father and he redeems me through them. All right? Redeems me through that act. But it doesn't stop there. Because he didn't just see my sins. He sees everything I did. Right? Everything I, I will do. Everything I've done, everything I will do. From the beginning of my life to the end. He'll see all the good that comes from his sweating blood in the garden. All the good I do. He'll see all the good I do. And he'll know that what he's doing then changes me now because he's not really doing it then he's just he's God he's doing it right so here is the the truth okay so that in the garden the fact that he sees my sins is not necessarily unique in the fact that he saw everything every moment he walked the face of the earth all right and so that time he took on my sins there was another time where he was winning some other grace for me right there was another time, like, all throughout his whole entire walking around, it's almost as if I was the only man in the world. It's almost as because, in a certain respect, I am. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. All right, so, so what am I ultimately saying? Well, Pius XII on the sheet, this is why I want you to sort of have this so you can meditate on it later. He said, For hardly was he conceived in the womb of the mother of God when he began to enjoy the beatific vision. And in that vision, all the members of his mystical body were continually and unceasingly present to him. Okay, everyone, every moment from the incarnation on, every person in the church was before his mind. And he embraced them with redeeming love. So at every moment you were on his mind and he said, I'm doing this for Lizzie. I'm doing this for Elizabeth. 
That's, that's what he did. Every moment from beginning to end. O marvelous condescension of divine love for us. O inestimable dispensation of boundless charity. In the crib, on the cross, in the unending glory of the Father, Christ has all the members of the church present before him and united to him in a much clearer and more loving manner than that of a mother who clasps her child to her breast or than that which a man knows and loves himself. So now, if we think about that for just a second, every moment that's in the gospel, I was there. I was there. Every single one of those moments. I was in his mind. And in a certain respect, you know what he's doing? He's waiting for me to go to him there to get what he was going to give me. The whole reason he went through it. Right? So this is why, by the way, like when we read the Gospels, each time we read them, we get something different out of it. Because it, it didn't do it just once. He didn't just go, okay, here's the Beatitudes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this grace today for Rob. No, it's like, I'm going to win a grace for each time Rob comes back to me here, comes back and sits at my feet at the mountain. And so what this ultimately this truth then stops us from doing is going into scripture and just having these kind of sterile musings about what's going on. Like going into the bread of life, life discourse and go, oh yeah, 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 I know. This is how I, this is how I smite Protestants. Right? This is how I stick it to Protestants. Right? Well, if I do that, that's fine, but that's not why Jesus did it, Right? I mean, you can proof text all you want, but Jesus isn't, he's not doing that in prayer. He's not giving you proof text. He's transforming you. He's saying, come to me. Sit at my feet, and I have something for you. Right? And so our, our meditations then are going to sit at Jesus' feet and find out what he wanted to give us. Right? Does that make sense? Like, everyone, do you all believe that? I, I didn't just make that up. It's not just some kind of like, oh, this is a really cool way to trick people into praying. That's not it at all, right? This is, a, this is a foundational truth about the fact that the eternal God became man at a certain time in a certain place and unites all times to that certain time and certain place. All right, so now I don't need explanations of what's going on. I need to go have an encounter with Jesus, all right? I can give you, give you a, just a simple example of many of the times that this has drawn fruit. Very prone to discouragement. That's one of my, the weapons the devil can hit me with. Um, and I woke up one morning and I was really discouraged. Um, and it was, a fr- it was actually a Friday morning. And normally on Fridays, I'll meditate on something in the Passion. And this particular day, I was really struggling to pray. And I was just like, Jesus, I'm just, just going to sit with you in the garden. And immediately my imagination lights up of kneeling beside him and him leaning over to me and saying, this is where discouragement dies. He says, this is where discouragement dies. You know what happened to my discouragement? Gone. So you know what I do every time I'm discouraged? Just go kneel beside Jesus in the, in the garden. It's gone. That's it. It's not a weapon. Because right? I know where he went and redeemed my discouragement. I know where he went and won the grace to destroy discouragement in my heart. And it's just a simple, a simple thing, right? Like, this is just taking a simple truth, submitting myself to it, and actually living it out. And it totally alters reality, totally alters the way I look at the Gospels, totally alters. And by the way, I'm using the Gospels, but Scripture is the same. That's why it's the living Word of God. 
That's why it penetrates our hearts and it doesn't return to God void because every word in Scripture, when the Holy Spirit inspired it, knew you were going to read it today. Knew that those words were for you. And so what you have to do is just sit at the feet of Jesus and ask him, okay, what's this for? And some days you'll get really clear answers. Other days it'll just be so you can keep me company. Right? So don't think this is going to give you like these, all these unbelievable insights in your prayer life. It's not. Because some days it's just to sit patiently with Jesus, right? Go, go into the garden and you're like, I'm really struggling here. And he's like, oh yeah. He's like, I, I know about your struggles. He's like, and I prayed that you persevered through them. Because I, I asked God, that to, I asked the Father to take away my struggles. And so I just want the grace for you to just keep persevering. It's, a, it's, it's not about, this is not a magic formula. That's why don't get overly wedded to it. But it's extremely effective for having Christ come alive for you. There's another reason why it's really good. So one of the, every age has its like in, sort of ingrown obstacles to prayer. And ours is our inability to govern our imagination. Because it's constantly being assaulted, right? Like we pick up a phone and like all these images are right. So we have a lot of trouble um, controlling our imagination, right? Um, So I think like electronic fasts are are good for us because we sort of win back our imagination a little bit. What this is really doing though is submitting your imagination to Christ. Because you're taking the event and you're imagining yourself there. You don't need a whole bunch of like side stuff. You just need Jesus, like, if you can imagine Jesus doing the thing that he's, that's going on, that's all you need. Because he knew, you know, on this Saturday, each one of you was going to come to him at, at, Jordan, at the River Jordan. Right? And, he, and he said, okay, I have a grace for each one of you, and I'm going to give it to you. Just ask. All right. all right. So does that all sort of make sense? All right, if it does, then what we're going to do is kind of go walk through this just a little bit, and then you're going to go off and um, do it yourself. So one of, the, um, one of the things that Jesus kind of, in a generic way, merited for all of us is the gift of prayer. All right, so in a certain sense, like our prayer is just participation in his prayer. But that's why he prayed. But he also, in each one of our hearts, created an inner room. He says, go to your inner room. Like, okay, where's my inner room? Well, Lord, you're going to have to build that inner room because I have no idea where that is. The inner room is that place, and there's a place in each one of us that only God can go. All right? Devil can't go there. Your guardian angel can't go there. Your friends can't go there. It's a place so deep within us that only God goes. And if we're in a state of grace, that place is the place where the Holy Spirit lives. Right? And so when you do things and, uh, and you begin to pray, when you place yourself in the presence of God, right, God is always present to you. What Jesus is really inviting you to do is go to your inner room, go to that place where only you and I can be alone. Right? And he's going to bring the Holy Spirit and the Father with him because he always does. Right? And so that's our first step in prayer is to go, Jesus, you built the inner room. I praise you. I bless you. I thank you. I'm going there. And as we begin to see, right, when, when God lives somewhere, um, when God is present, he doesn't sit still. So the Holy Spirit is like the divine fidget, right? Always kind of nudging and nudging and nudging, always at work, 
Right? So just the Holy Spirit is literally waiting for you to go to that inner room so that you can interact with him. All right, so, so you enter the inner room and you make an act of faith, hope, and love. All right, you, you acknowledge who you're with and then you exercise the theological virtues. All right, and I think I gave you three sort of just examples of what that would look like. All right, so I believed you were baptized in the Jordan and the Father was, spoke and the Holy Spirit was there, whatever. So why you do this, right? Because for most of us, well, for all of us, our faith isn't as strong as it should be. And sometimes we beat ourselves up over that and think, well, I should just have stronger faith. I just have No, faith is a gift, right? And it strengthens by exercising it. So what feels like kind of fake or weak is exactly how it's supposed to feel. It's a virtue. And we have to continue to exercise it. And sometimes we just exercise it by kind of saying the words and trying to muster the feelings behind it. And then the same thing with hope. All of my hope is in you. All the other distractions, those aren't, those aren't my hope. And when you do that, hope grows, hope expands, faith expands, and then charity. And always be really specific in these, right? Like, I hope in you because, you know, you knelt down in the garden and told me where discouragement dies. I love you because, not just because you're God, but because you're my God. And then you read the passage slowly. And then you just sit there and talk to Jesus. And that's it. Tell him, you know, why, Lord, why did you have me come here? Why did you summon me? And then ask him for the grace he has been literally dying to give you. And then when you linger there and you feel like you've been there long enough and he kind of shoes you away, um, then you make acts of thanksgiving. And then you make acts of adoration, thanksgiving, sorrow for your sins, ask for things, specific things. And then resolve with God's help to be graceful. So what I want you to do is find a, a space by yourself where you can be just alone with Jesus and try that for 15 minutes. So anyone who has uh, sort of been paying attention to our culture knows that there's a, this big um, sort of push for identity. Right? Where do we get our identity from? Is it something we have to make up ourselves? Is it something innate to us? Is it something personal? Is it something political? And so what I want to do in this, uh, this talk is to talk about our identity. All right, so what is a, what, first of all, what is a Christian? All right, so a Christian is not necessarily a nice person, maybe, not necessarily even a good person, but a Christian is a holy person, okay? And there's only one thing that makes us holy, God. And specifically, the only thing that makes us holy is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens to us in baptism is what God bestows our identity on us, right? And think about, um, like, the, the baptism in the Jordan, right, where Christ um, is baptized is really about 
revealing his identity. And so in a certain sense, not surprising that, at Bapti- that during the baptism of the Jer- Jordan, he won the grace for us to, to be able to uh, have our, our identity, especially have our identity revealed to us. So St. Paul in Romans 8, 16, 17 says this. He says, For the Spirit himself gives testimony to our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God, and of sons, heirs also, heirs indeed of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Yet so, if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So it is the Holy Spirit that testifies that we belong to God, that God is our Father. So he is the one who gives us our identity as Christians. And so where he is, that you find a Christian. And he's the one who bestows our identity on us, okay? And so think about the, the two moments in the Gospels where you see the Holy Spirit present. Both times, the Father speaks about the identity of Christ. And so this is why St. Paul says later in Romans, he says that it's the Spirit that crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who um, reveals to us uh, who the Father is especially in, in a deeply personal way, right? And so identity, right? If we talk about our identity, there's kind of three components of identity, right? Where you came from or who you came from, where you are, what you're doing, and where you're going. Right? And so we already talked a little bit about where we're going, what progress is. And so we want to talk about how now we want to talk a little bit about our history, specifically who we came from. Right? And think about it, this is just a normal thing, right? Like when you come from a stable family and you know your parents and you know you were created out of love and your parents still together, there's a lot of stability in your identity. Right? You know who you belong to. And you know, when you know history about your family, you know who you belong to. And on the flip side, you take like the born identity, right? He loses his memory and he has no idea who he is. And so that a key component of identity is where we came from. This idea, though, of identity um, is not something new. Like our culture has made it into something, um, but that idea of identity is uh, pretty much perpetually um, part of the human condition. So think about this for a second. So when Satan fell, he lost his identity, right? More accurately, when Lucifer fell, he ceased to belong to God. Sanctifying grace left his his being, I was going to say soul, but his being, and he ceased to be Lucifer. And so what does he do? He turns and then tries to steal everyone else's identity. Right? Specifically, it starts with Eve. Right? And how does he do that? How does he do that? He goes and questions her whether God is really her father. Right? So he goes, to the, he goes and he tempts her and he says, 
Did God really tell you that? I think God is holding out on you. I think your father has not provided everything for you. So she, he blurs in her mind that God is her father and then steals her identity. How did, she, how did he steal her identity? The thing we always talk about with the fall, right? We think about, oh, like, now she has original sin. Now she, um, you know, now her intellect is weak. Her intellect is um, darkened. Her will is weak. Her passions are all run amok. But that's not the worst thing that happened. The worst thing that happened is the Holy Spirit, the divine indwelling, left her and all of her children to follow. Save one. We'll talk about this afternoon. So her identity was lost when she fell because she lost the, the Spirit of God. Right? And she lost sanctifying grace. Right? So sanctifying grace, the way to think about sanctifying grace and why it's so important, what sanctifying grace does is builds a nest for the Holy Spirit in your soul. Think about that for a second. Right? When the Holy Spirit comes, when we're baptized, when he comes, with him comes sanctifying grace. And then throughout the rest of our lives, we can build sanctifying grace in our souls so that the Holy Spirit becomes more and more at home. Right? And the ways we build sanctifying grace, right? Sacraments, prayer, and acts of love for God. Sacraments, acts of love for God and prayer. And so if we begin to think about if I want to, we've got sort of this new uh, or a different understanding of what progress is, right? Progress is a deeper and deeper and deeper nest for the Holy Trinity in my soul. So Satan comes and he tells her that she will be like God. That's a lie. Right? That's a lie. Because she already was. What he's really trying to do is get her to be like God on her own terms. And to reject the gift of God's fatherhood. And what she leaves then for everyone else is this sort of innate suspicion of God as father. Right? It's kind of built into us. Right? That's why I said... This is, no matter where you are in a spiritual journey, always returning to the fact that God is my Father is vital because our sort of spiritual DNA, it's kind of written on it. Did he really tell you that? Is he really looking out for you? It's the constant temptation. Not just internally, but also Satan will always, always question. Always get you to put God on trial. So we have to be on guard for that. So, example. Um, I mean, you can imagine, given the sort of the culture all around us, that all of us are pretty anxious about where all of this is going to end. Right? And I certainly am not immune to that. Um, and so the other day, in kind of my... Uh, 
for whatever reason, just really prone to being anxious about it. And I'm like, okay, I really just need to buckle down and, and really try harder, try harder. Right? And so I go and I talk to my wife. I'm like, look, like, you know, you know, things could happen. You know, I could lose my job. Um, we just need to be really, really careful about what we spend. We need to be careful about all these things. So this is Rob saying, okay, hold on, I got this. I didn't see it at the time. I didn't see that at all. And so um, she's like, yeah, yeah, I agree. She's like, I agree. And so um, about 10 minutes later, I'm standing out in the garage, and she's pulling out of the driveway. She's going to kill me for telling the story. But the fire hydrant hits her car. Um, actually, she hit the fire hydrant, but we'll just tell, tell it the nice way. Um, and, like, not just gently, like, pull bumper off, pop tire, like, bend wheel well, right? And I'm, like, looking, and my eyes are, like, this big, and I'm, like, like okay, that's a lot of, like, immediately I'm thinking, uh, where went my plan just from, like, 15 minutes ago? Like, cut down on spending and all that. And I just look, and I'm, like, Thank you, God. Totally didn't necessarily mean it, but I said it like teeth gritting because I'm like, okay, but, you know. And immediately, Holy Spirit says, I just told you to trust me. Now I'm going to make you trust me, right? So it's a simple thing, right? Like it's a, like I could have freaked out about that. I could have went into full more control mode, right? But I, out of gratitude, like almost feigned gratitude, right? Like gratitude with a grain of faith in it. I said, thank you. And he said, you're welcome. You needed that. You needed that. Because if Rob plans and Rob does it, Rob's going to screw it up. Like, that's, that's a given. Like, we have much data on that. Right? When God does it, there's no screwing it up. All right? And so that's the point, right? Like, where I thought God was holding out on me. I thought, look... I, I don't, I don't see you in this, so you must be holding out. Let me control the situation. Like, wrong answer. Wrong answer. And thanks be to God, he was right there to tell me. And then my wife could totally blame me for it, which is also great. She's like, see, your fault. If you would have just trusted, I wouldn't have hit the fire hydrant. <laughs> um, so the point, though, right, is understanding that God is always active in my life if I just let him be my father. Right, so, so what happens immediately? So if we, if we go like past the baptism, what happens immediately to Jesus? He's driven out into the desert. Driven. Jesus driven. Driven by who? The Holy Spirit. Right? So the Holy Spirit drove him out into the desert. Why? So he could be tempted by the devil. Okay. We sort of now, after the other meditation, we sort of get why that might be. Um, because there were graces to be won for you and for me when we're tempted by the devil. But if we stick to that idea of identity, that's exactly what the devil tries to attack in Jesus. Right? Exactly what he tries to take away. If you're really the son of God, if, you really, if God really loves you, if God is really your father, you'll do this, this, and this. So it goes right at the identity. So then this, this stealing of the identity is something that needs to be redeemed. 
and something we need to go to Jesus for. All right. And so it's the Holy Spirit that gives us our identity, our true identity, and reveals to us who we really are. And so Christ isn't just giving us an example. He's giving us the power to fight to get our identity back. He's like, Jesus is like the eternal life lock, right? Where he's like protecting your identity. Um, And so much of our, our identity problem, our identity, loss of identity, is getting us to see and getting us to untwist Satan's lie to us about God's providence. Right, so providence has the word provide in it, right? So it's the way that God provides for us. But we tend to look at it in this like, I want to call it like a George Washington way. I, I hate to call it like that. But this way of just, just like, okay, this is how God like, played like Jenga with events and fitted them all, fit them all together. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's how everything just kind of runs smoothly. That's not providence, though. Like, that... Providence is God's management of the universe and the world and everything created as if I am the only one in it. Providence is God's management of the universe as if I am the only one in it. Why? Because St. Paul says that all things, all, work for the good of those who love God. So everything that happens, fire hydrants jumping in front of the car, is for our good. We just have to submit to it. Right? We just have to understand that everything that God does is for our good. He is constantly, He doesn't stop. Every single moment, God is providing for us. From the smallest thing to the biggest thing, and there's no small things. They're all big things. Because they're all about forming us to be like Jesus. And so... No matter how dark it is, how hard it is, it's for our good. God made each one of us for this specific time, this specific place. He knew what he was doing. And he always equips us for those times. And so no matter how hard anything gets, Jesus already knew that. It's like the, the, the ultimate planner. Like he, he planned ahead, right? Planned ahead for that. There's no, like, this is where the virtue of hope, right? That even in the midst of the darkest moment, I know that, that God is providing for me everything I need. And so this is why uh, one of the, in the, I think it's the litany of the Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the finger of God. It's someone coming down and touching us and nudging us and saying, don't be afraid, just go. Don't be afraid, just go. And so hope as a virtue is what we use to cling to God in the midst of all things, right? I love the story of uh, Esther. You guys know the story of Esther? Um, so Esther becomes queen. And she finds out about this plot against the Jews. And she knows she can't go really do anything about it because... If she just goes, you know, unbidden before the king, even if she's the queen, he'll kill her. And so her uncle Mordecai says to her, 
you were made for a time such as this. You were made for a time such as this. And she goes without fear. What did he say? He's like, okay. There is no accidents with God providentially. He made you. And this maybe he made you for this very moment. And he made us for every moment. Right? All right, so I'm kind of uh, sitting around this a little bit, and I want to go a little deeper into it. Because I said, at every moment, God is providing us with exactly what we need to grow in holiness. But what about those moments when we're suffering? Well, if we look at suffering the right way, and it's kind of an unpopular way to look at it, um, but if we look at it the right way as punishment, then we begin to see what God is doing. All right, so, so why did I use the word punishment? Right? And then we don't really like that term at all, right? Except if we think our Father loves us, punishment is good. Right? You can call it suffering if you want, if that makes you feel better, but that makes it seem accidental, as if God is not intimately involved in my life and turning me back. Right? I could say much suffering because I now I have to shell out a bunch of money to fix a car. Or I could say, my loving father corrected my view. Right? And because it was so distorted, he had to yell a little louder. So to grasp this, right, we've we got to be clear with, I think, three things. The first is that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Like We have to be utterly convinced of that. We have to be utterly convinced, and this is like the message for our age, that the book of Hebrews says Jesus came to take away the devil's power over death, right? And so, and to take away the fear of death. Jesus came to take away the fear of death. How many decisions in the past year and a half have been made because in mass people are afraid of death? A lot, right? A lot. And you know what that really says? You know what they need? Jesus. Because right? only Jesus takes away the fear of death. Right? And that's not like we walk around with a death wish. Um, but what it actually means is that I am convinced totally that death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Well, what's the worst thing that can happen to me then? To go to hell, Right? The worst thing that can happen to me is to go to hell. Again, not really necessarily a popular way to look at things. Um, but it's reality, right? It's reality. And not something we necessarily need to uh, get overly scrupulous about. But if it's not somehow in our minds, then we're going to miss the sort of the big picture. All right? So if hell is the worst thing that can happen to me, then suffering and punishment, whatever you want to call it in this life, isn't really a bad thing, but something we should lean into. Okay, why, do we, why should we lean into it? Well, because we're broken and God's fixing us. We're broken and God is fixing us. And he's using just everyday events in our life. Right? I always think about how St. Therese... She's like, what's my vocation? What's my vocation? And she goes, she has this genius idea of like, okay, my vocation is to be love. 
like to be loved. God, pour out all the love on me that nobody else wants. And so what happens to her? She dies at 24 from tuberculosis. Right? Why? Why, why would God do that? Because that was the absolute gentlest way to get his little flower to be with him for eternity. So, again, there are many, many ways I could have learned the don't try to control things lesson. God chose the best way, the gentlest way, because he is my father. And so all of his punishments are good. Right? All of his punishments are good. So a good father uh, always when they discipline, punish their children, there's two things that kind of have to be restored, right? The first is the sort of the external disorder created by the act. And the second is the internal disorder created by the act. So what, it, what it's doing to the person, all right? So you think about even just simple things, right? Where we, this is the idea behind penance, right? So we, we, we steal the pleasure from something that we, we shouldn't have stole the pleasure from, and so in penance, we give that pleasure back by not taking pleasure in something that we should normally take pleasure in, right? And that's fine, because that sort of cr- fixes the external part of our sins. But what about what it did to me? What about what it turned me into, right? When, just out of simple embarrassment, I lie, right? And it makes me just a little bit more of a liar. How do we fix that? Well, if I didn't tell the truth because I was embarrassed, guess what ha- normally happens? Another opportunity comes up to be embarrassed. And so this time, what do I do? I lean into it. Right? And I think, I deserve that. I deserve that. In fact, I needed that. So one of my boys, uh, we were at Mass on a Sunday, um, and there was this girl at school. Uh, it was pretty, di- I mean, in all honesty, she's too difficult. And I look over at him, and he's, and he's making fun of her during Mass with one of his brothers. And I was like, oh, man, really? Like in the middle of Mass? Um, and so after Mass, I was like, well, what were you doing? He goes, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. I totally knew what he was doing, right? But I didn't say anything. I just kind of left it there. Right? Uh, the next afternoon, I get a call from his school. And uh, he was in pretty big trouble because somebody had made fun of the girl and they blamed him. Totally didn't do it. He totally didn't do it. Right. And um, and so I'm talking to them and they're like, look, he's going to have to stay home for a couple of days. And they're like, you know, what he did was pretty bad. And I'm like, are you sure he did it? No, we're sure he did it. I asked him, like, did you do that? He's like, no. He's like. He's like, I saw who did it, but I didn't do it. And so, um, so they send him home for a couple of days, and he is livid because he was treated so unjustly. And I'm, admittedly, I'm pretty upset, too, because, I mean, I got to kind of fix the injustice, right? But they were having no part of it. And so at a certain point, I was like, okay, like, you're going to be home for two days. But I asked him a question. I said, well, what's God doing in that? Like, what is God doing in that? And he's like, I don't know. I'm just mad. And I'm like, uh, who is the girl? And he tells me who the girl was. I was like, is that the same girl that you were making fun of at Mass? And you can see all of a sudden he's like, the eyes get big. And then the tears start flowing. 
And I said, I guess God corrected that, didn't he? And he said, yeah. And he never complained, never said another word about it. The end of it. That was totally the end of it. He just leaned into it and he's like, I deserve this. Right? And in the midst of it, right, he learned compassion for her. Right? Because a lot of people were picking on her. And he was kind to her. He would never have been kind to her otherwise. He just would have joined everybody else. And honestly, like, if I were, I don't know, if I were given from now until 2030, I could have never come up with a punishment like that. Right? That was that, was that profound, like, and put that big of a mark on his heart. Right? Because only God can do that. Only God can, only the Holy Spirit with a finger can nudge the heart that way. Right? Because I would have just been, in his mind, piling on the injustice. So the question then is, when that happens, when suffering happens, the first question out of your mouth is, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? Not, don't worry about the other things. Now, certainly, like, unjust things, we got to say something. But at a certain point, we got to go, okay, this is God working. What are you doing, God? Because you know what? I want to get behind that, and I want to cooperate with it. And if we begin to see, like, everything, like if we... Again, sit on that word all. All things work for the good of those who love God. Like, do we really believe that? So much so that when things are really uncomfortable or really hard or really, like, even just, I don't understand. Can I at least start from the point of Deo gratias? Can I at least say thank you? And then try to figure out what? God is doing because he's doing good right? and there's no reason this is why I can't stand when people are like they won't admit that God punishes us because it's so good for us we need it and of course he provides it and there's not that is nothing like you know what I want I want a God who actually cares enough to correct me like that's the father I want even just like the whole coronavirus thing, like all these people are like, they're so hesitant to go like, well, God would never punish people like that. Well, then it, it's meaningless. Then suffering is meaningless if God is not using it for my good. And I don't want to live in that world because that's not the real world. Right? So, so again, this is, I'm not trying to be like, uh, hey, let's go around and find all the suffering we can because like, that's not what I'm talking about. But we, do, we have to have the courage to go to God and go, okay, what are you doing here? And what do I need to do? And then suddenly, that's, how people, that's why and how people are joyful in suffering, by the way. Right? You see these people who are like, uh, how are they joyful? Well, because they know they're being touched by the hand of divine providence. That's why God is always close to the suffering. That's why he's always close to the brokenhearted. It's because like a father, he's there picking up, picking up the pieces and, and the wounds, right? That's love, and that's, that's an intimate father who is completely and totally committed to his child. So the, the point, and I already said this, I want to make sure that this is really clear, because there, there are an infinite number of ways that like, I can discipline my children. Maybe not infinite, but... Um, and some will be like just a stroke of genius, and some will be not so much, Right? <laughs> But for God, we have to be convinced that he's not 
like just doling out punishments, but he's picking the best and the most gentle way. He didn't crush the little flower, right? 